Good morning and welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy, everyone. My name is Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host again this month. Uh, this is our July edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy, and I imagine that a lot of you, at least in Pocahontas County, are getting ready to go out and enjoy Pioneer Days. Um, we hope you enjoy this program as well. My guest this morning is Dr. Glenn Langston. He's an astronomer here at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank. And he has uh, been using the Green Bank Telescope quite a bit lately. He has uh, a large amount of time, 100 hours of time, to search in the Milky Way for the largest molecule ever. We'll be talking with him this morning about uh, his search for this molecule and what it means to how life formed in the Milky Way. Thanks so much for joining us, Glenn. It's good to have you. Thank you, Sue Ann. Thanks for having me today. And yeah, uh, we've actually, it's been working on a very exciting project with the GBT um, this summer. Well, actually, this since January through this summer, we've been getting small bits of time that we've been using to concentrate on one particular place in the sky. It's it's a, a minute spot in the sky from most people's point of view, but it is rich in. It's already been shown to be very rich in chemistry, and that's why the Green Bank Telescope has devoted so much time to this project. Um, we this spot in the sky has been observed with in Green Bank for 30 years with the 140-foot telescope and made some major um, discoveries there, the first chemistry uh, chemicals, uh, some of the first chemicals found in our galaxy were found uh, with the 140-foot. But now that we have the GBT, we have much more sensitivity and we can, we can see things that we couldn't see before. Mm -hmm. um, so what are you looking for? So we're, we're, we're looking for, we're actually carrying on a partially, this project is carrying on a tradition or a, a research project that began some time ago. Um, it's a, we're looking for one molecule, and one type of molecule. We're looking for a vast quantity of it. We'd expect it to be oceans and oceans of quantity of it, maybe even planet-sized amounts of uh, this molecule called HC13N, which, which is unique molecule. It's not found at all on the Earth, but it is one hydrogen, mm -hmm. an element hydrogen, with, in a, with a string of 13 carbons in a line, So it's, and then one nitrogen on the end. It's, it's a poisonous, very highly reactive molecule, which so if it, if it happened to occur on the Earth by some random uh, chemical process, it would immediately transition into something else because it's so reactive. But and that's part of the mystery of uh, this kind of chemistry that's going on in space is it, it's very different than what you see on the Earth because the temperatures and the pressures and the densities are completely different than what we've been, what you normally experience on the Earth. So um, this molecule, and by the way, folks, I wish you could see it because Glenn's got uh, a ball and stick representation of this molecule on the table here, which does look like a... Uh, well, it looks like a long, long filament with lots of carbons on it. So you're saying this molecule is not made on Earth at all? Yes, right? that's right. It's, it's, it doesn't naturally occur on Earth. It can only be made in space. Yeah. It, it can be made in the laboratory on Earth, but it isn't found at all. Like if you were to take a cup of ocean water or a cup of, of dirt or anything, you wouldn't find any of this uh, molecule at all because it is just so reactive. But it... 
And we are interested in this molecule because it is unique, and it, it's actually a part of a family of molecules. You can, I told you this was has one hydrogen on one end and one nitrogen on the other end, and thir a string of 13 carbons in the middle. There, but, and this molecule we have not yet found, and, but it has been claimed that the, the one, a similar molecule that's a little bit smaller, um, has with one hydrogen, I can tell you a lot of carbons, uh, 11 carbons in a row, and one nitrogen, we believe, has been detected with the 140 foot a decade ago. And that was after 40 hours of very hard work and, and careful study. Um, so let me ask you a, a little bit about how it is that you try to detect yeah. this molecule. Uh, you're pointing the telescope at some uh, place in the sky where you found other molecules. Mm -hmm. And how is it that you then try to detect this one? Yeah, that's 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 a good uh, question. It's a very it's an important part of the whole project. I need to describe that we we actually cannot we we have to discover a molecule by looking at many different frequencies. It turns out that these molecules are because they're so simple, just straight lines. They're much more simple than ninety nine point nine percent of the the uh, carbon molecules in your body, which have thousands of of chains of carbon. These molecules have a very simple radio spectrum that we can detect when they're actually in clouds of gas in our galaxy. And the, and the galaxy, our galaxy, is full of planets and, and stars, but about half of the material in our galaxy is not even in a star or not in a planet or anything like that. It's just spread out as a thin dust of, of gas. Mm -hmm. And in some spots where planets are, we think, are just have and stars have just finished forming or just died and exploded, we actually find little dense regions that are really rich in carbon. And in those regions in our galaxy, all of this chemistry just starts happening. And, and different, a completely different kind of chemistry that we wouldn't even have guessed about, really, if we hadn't used the radio telescopes to discover it. So it wasn't, nobody was sitting in an office doing calculations and figured that, oh, these long carbon chains would naturally occur. It was just, they did occur because we went and looked. And that's, what, that's why we keep doing that because we, you know, the things you don't expect are very often discovered with radio telescopes. And that, that's what motivates us. So in the laboratory, you said you could make this molecule. Yeah. And that's where you determine what its spectrum would yeah. look like? So, yeah. So not, go back to your, to go back and answer the question. And we, we actually look at the the radio spectrum, the same way as if you would just take a, a radio in your car and tune it across, and every so often, every every few um, megahertz, like one and a half megahertz or something, you hear a radio source, and then you hear nothing but noise, and you hear another radio source. When you, if you have an old-fashioned radio with a knob, um, it turns out that the, the same type of thing happens if you look in the radio at a different frequency, and you have a of, you can really have a big knob because you have to cover many, many megahertz of uh, frequency, but you actually hear a, a faint signal. You really could, if you wanted to, you would hear a pure tone of some frequency and then be a, a vast gap, and then you would hear another tone. And if you write down all of those uh, frequencies, you hear these signals with a similar strength, which is important, um, then you'll actually be able to deduce what you actually deduce is the... Uh, the thing called the angular momentum of the uh, a moment of inertia of a molecule. And because we, we know something about the chemistry, because it's actually, in fact, a remarkable thing that 
The chemicals that form are unique, but they follow the same principles that we see on Earth. So that the distance between carbon molecules you could predict because of what we do in the lab, that same, all those same laws happen out in deep space, we believe, and that's why we, we can identify this molecule. So what we do is we, we make many, many observations at many different frequencies, just like as if your frequency again is just like a different station on your uh, radio, and we see, the, we see a signal, and we, by having a mathematical model for that um, molecule, we can identify it, and we, we can actually refute it, refute it being the molecule if the, if the spacing of those little tones that we see, we really see them, we don't really hear them, but you could imagine hearing them, um, aren't at the right spacing. We know it's not the molecule we're hunting for. And there are many unknown tones, actually, in these molecular clouds. I forgot to mention that where we're looking for this is in one, we're looking 100 hours in one direction in the sky towards the Taurus molecular cloud. And that's a place that, w that we, again, has a history of being known to show th things that you're familiar with, in the, you know, like ammonia and water and uh, the, from, well, I don't know if, how much formaldehyde you <laughs> have in your kitchen, but uh, things like that that are fairly common, they're certainly common to the elementary chemist, chemistry student um, and, and are seen in this cloud of gas. And, and a lot of these molecules are called organic molecules. Um, because they contain carbon and are often associated with life on the Earth. But we don't believe that any of these molecules have been created by life in this cloud. It's just a slow but huge chemical process that's occurring in these clouds because there's so much carbon and there's a little bit of energy and the carbon molecules uh, eventually run into each other and create these, these, these chemicals that we see. Well, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that you're pointing at this one spot for 100 hours. I don't know if people realize how difficult it is and, and arduous it is to try to detect new chemicals in space. So as you, day after day, get a little bit of time, you're adding that into this previous data that you've collected to try to, to see average. these little tones peek up out of the, out of the noise. Yeah. The, it's, it, Radio astronomy observations are pretty pretty much like uh, everything else in life, really. In a certain sense, the more you work at it, the better better it, this, the 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 data become. Um, basically, what it goes with you to see a very very faint signal, you have to observe and average all of those hours of data up for a long time to make that detection. Um, and we have to observe, like I said, it it wouldn't do any good to find just one signal. We have to find this whole sequence signals that we have to look at all of these different frequencies. So we, we do have a, because of a group at Harvard actually, Harvard and, and Cambridge, Massachusetts have made a model for what we expect this to be and that's we're using those frequencies and look to essentially tuning our receivers to those things. So you, you kind of have to see a pattern yeah. of tones in order to say that you've identified make, a certain... Make that discovery. Okay. That's right. The, the, I, I would like to stop and sort of say, you know, what, why this molecule is important. Yeah. It has two reasons why it's important. At first, it's just a new physical phenomenon. This, this molecule is something that isn't common on Earth, and it just, by studying that type of thing, you can understand more about how Earth and our lives fit in with the bigger picture. The, but the other, more slightly more specific thing is that there, there is not 
really a complete understanding yet of how life on Earth began. And it, this, is, this is particularly the, the thing that we're after, is trying to relate life on Earth to the rest of the galaxy, the rest of the galaxy that, we, that our solar system is in. And it's not a direct connection. I mean, we're still really in the first stages of understanding that. But there is reasons to why we, connections that other scientists are making with um, experiments in our solar system. We're, the, the most remarkable thing, and I think is something that would, never, would not have been expected it also, is that meteorites, which are known to fall on the Earth and sometimes make vast craters, but usually make little tiny, little tiny pieces of meteorites uh, fall on the Earth and can be collected. They're actually found, you know, and and look can be examined in the taken to a laboratory and examined, and you can study the chemical processes of them. Now, some meteorites are just iron, and those don't seem to have too much uh, going on in the way of chemistry. They really are more metallurgy. Right. But there's another kind of meteorite called a carbonaceous meteorite. And that meteorite, those meteorites have been found, one particularly famous one called, it's given a name, it was found in, Mur in Murchison, which I believe is a town in, uh, in Australia. And people immediately, a lot of people saw that meteorite fall, they saw the bright flash in the sky, and they collected 100 pounds of it, I believe, something like that anyway, maybe more, maybe less. And they took pieces of it to a lab and they found some very interesting and very significant molecules, a vast variety of molecules, but they found something called an amino acid, mm -hmm. amino acids. And those are a, on this meteorite and probably just created by chemical, random chemical processes. But happens that amino acids are significant to me and you and everybody listening because they're the, the uh, Basically, the, the chemical alphabet that describes the DNA in our bodies. They're the, they're the base, they're not DNA, but they're the pieces of, that are built together to be DNA. And so that's really a very interesting discovery. That is. Yeah, it's this tremendous. stuff came from space. It came from space. It didn't, didn't seem to be generated. And there, there's reasons why there's a lot of people who were skeptical and they, uh, like maybe just dirt or plant life that happened to come on the meteorite. And there's ways of showing that it wasn't just an impurity from the Earth. It's actually the certain chemical signatures that show that it couldn't have originated on the Earth and it was actually... So they were slightly different in the way they were The amino built. acids. The, the amino acids in the mm -hmm. meteorite were slightly different than, than what you would find on yeah. Earth. It's not so much that the amino acids that we did find there are exactly the same thing on Earth, but in fact, there's amino acids in this meteorite that you don't find on Earth. In addition, okay. In addition, so that's really, yeah. there's no question that the, the amino acids that are found, some of them are exactly like the ones on life. But in addition, there's some that are not found on Earth, at least very, very rarely found on Earth. So that's really a significant thing. So, Is that the only instance where a meteorite has fallen to the ground and they've found amino acids in it? Uh, the Murchison is by far the most famous, and it was fairly rich. There are others. There's actually not a vast, there's probably under 100 known carbonaceous meteorites that have been checked, that have been found. I actually, I'm not a particularly expert in that field, but I, I, the, the, there are more than one, so it's not a, just a one-of kind of discovery. Okay. The, so, so the question, these meteorites didn't originate in throughout the whole galaxy. They're actually still solar system objects. So you, 
the one question that an astronomer might ask is, so we, we see these meteorites, maybe they, they shared in the same kind of physical and chemical processes that led to the Earth, led to the formation of the Earth, the surface of the Earth, and the water, and the, all of the chemistry that's on the Earth. But only radio astronomers can actually look beyond our solar system and into the galaxy and see what chemistry is real, what exactly what chemicals are being created because of the unique features of the conditions of our galaxy. Radio astronomers can look at a cloud of gas with a big telescope like the GBT, and because you can, you can in fact, what happens is you survey. You just look over a whole frequency range, and you see weak lines and strong lines, and you make identifications of what those are. And you can actually, you can see chemistry in there because you can see different combinations of carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and, and uh, oxygen and silicon. And you can then, once you have all that data, you can start, or theorists can start, to try to understand what kind of chemistry is happening. You can also figure out, you can deduce what the temperatures are, what the pressures are, and the densities are in those clouds of gas. Based on the chemical properties you, you know from the laboratory, our laboratories on Earth, and then by making the radio spectrum measurements, you can, it, it's almost a remarkable, it's very remarkable that you can actually deduce a lot about something that's very far away. In the case of Taurus molecular cloud, where we like to observe, it's 140 light years away. So it takes light 140 years. So the data that we're taking, we took uh, some data on uh, the 3rd of July and the 4th of July, where everybody else was on vacation. We were observing all day. And uh, so that actually uh, light left 140 years before we, you know, it, it came in 1860 or something like that, right at the... Uh, That's uh, a fun notion just in and of itself, yeah. isn't so it? So right at the end of the Civil War, <laughs> that light left. Wow. And it just got here just in time for the 4th of July, and so we were th when I happened to, we happened to be working, me and my colleagues were working. Um, so, uh, okay, so let's, uh, let's just recap for a minute. We're, yeah. we're talking about molecules that are used or are part of DNA, which is our blueprint. Yes. You've uh, talked about these um, meteorites that contain these building blocks, these amino acids. And now we're talking about looking farther out into space outside of our solar system to see if we Can, see anything well, similar. We, we would like to, yes, that's right. So we've talked about, we found that there's amino acids on the Earth. We find that there's amino acids in meteorites. Those are significant chemicals. In deep space, we actually have not yet dis firmly discovered any amino acids, which is, that's, and that's an interesting point. We have not seen those yet. But we do see molecules that are actually much, much bigger. I forget the HC13N, again, the one that we're really working on right now, is bigger than more than half of all of the, the common, there's 20 known amino acids that are important for life on Earth, and it's bigger than half of those. So mm -hmm. certainly the chemical processes that make big molecules happen in deep, cold space. Whether or not, and what we're trying to see is if this chemistry that we see far, far away in deep cold, I mean, it's minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit in incredibly uh, tenuous vacuum, this chemistry is going on. Does it in any way relate to life on Earth? And we don't know the answer to that, but we're making the steps. Where that's what the GBT is spending 100 hours this year on, is to try to determine that.
Um, so that's that's really what the the GBT is. It's we actually are still we have not yet detected this HC13N, but it's we consider it one of the important projects. But the GBT is making has discovered people scientists using the GBT have discovered six new molecules in the last year, and that's actually out of a fairly small number. There's been 140 molecules found way outside of our solar system in different spots in, in clouds of gas in our galaxy. And in fact, many molecules have been found in other galaxies as well, but not quite as many because of the distance makes the signal weaker. So it's harder, they're harder to find. So we've found six new ones in the last couple of uh, years. We are scientists from NRAO in, in, in Greenback and from scientists from Goddard Space Flight Center and the National Institute of uh, Science and Technology, NIST, um, have uh, found these molecules. And they actually are important. The molecules they are finding, like a glycol aldehyde, are known to be important um, for life. This glycol aldehyde is a sugar that's found. There's other sort of, in fact, it's almost humorous, is a vast amount of ethyl alcohol is found, which is the kind of alcohol that's in alcoholic beverages is found. Um, but again, it's just, just a, it's not in any way distilled or anything like that. It's just that kind of chemistry occurs in, uh, in, in, in space, just spontaneously. And uh, there's many, uh, there's, you know, as I said, there's 140, so it would take a good long time to list all of the ones that have been found. But they're all, almost all of the bigger ones have a, are built out of carbon. Mm -hmm. and, and so our galaxy appears to be organic. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly because the carbon chemistry is such, so I mean, it's critical for life on the Earth. And it just naturally, these, these molecules are fairly stable. And so they can handle these very harsh conditions in space and, uh, and form. So this, uh, this search for your big molecule and others like it is an ongoing, an ongoing process here at the observatory in Green Bank, but in other places too, I'm sure. Tell us a little bit about uh, um, the, the quest for the search for these molecules and, and the difficulties there. Yeah, well, there is, again, these signals are, are very weak because, in, in, because of vast distances away. And also, the more complicated the molecule, the more complicated the spectrum, which actually is a good thing. But it turns out when the molecules are complicated and interesting, for, for which in fact all of the ones for life are, the, the signals become even weaker. And so, <clears throat> like for instance, the glycine molecule has been the subject of many discoveries and then fights in the scientific literature, literature about whether or not other scientists believe their detections are real. It's, and it's because these mo molecules are, are complicated. There are actually, glycine is not unique. There are, there's 20 different amino acids in the body and many similar chemicals. And they all are probably in, if it's a random chemical process, they're all present in the signal at the same time. And one problem we have is that you may think you found a, a molecular line, we call it, that corresponds to glycine, but it actually may have nothing to do with glycine. It would be a different um, chemical that's maybe more common. Um, so as I'm looking at your molecule <clears throat> laying here on the table, it's a very simple, large, but very simple, long, straight yeah. chain. 
So, so that would be an easier thing to detect if you see a, a signal from it than a molecule that, that looks more branched. Yeah, it's branched and has twists and turns and isn't in no way symmetric. This, these carbon chain molecules may be fairly rare in interstellar space, but because of their simple structure, they're very bright in, in radio waves, so they actually are easy to see. Uh, back to this glycine thing. So some, some people have claimed detection of, uh, of this molecule glycine by detection of like 10 different molecular lines, which is quite a large number, really. But other people then, but when you see those lines, you then can make predictions about what you should also see. And then more researchers went out and made more measurements and, and spent a lot of time trying to do this and did not make those detections. So that is, in fact, a, uh, a major, so that was, that was a little, maybe not a disappointment, it's just, that's just the way it was. They didn't, they didn't confirm those things. So then there's been a, a paper called The Careful Analysis of the Detection of Glycine. And the, the result of that paper was that they said they can't agree with these other scientists they, because they didn't see what they expected to see. And so now glycine is sort of undetected in the, the deep cold of interstellar space, and there's more people trying. And it, the, the, the chemical model is probably still right, but they just need to, it must be weaker than they thought. Um, and those other lines, molecular lines that were detected, maybe are probably due to a different chemical. Uh -huh. We don't even know what it is yet. That's still a, a mystery. Because the, as it doesn't take much for a, a few, you know, maybe certainly with 10 randomly arranged carbon atoms connected in funny ways, it makes the spectrum, you could be like a billion different kinds of molecules that could be made out of 10 carbon and carbon and hydrogen uh, combinations because of the, the way in which each carbon can connect with f four other atoms. Um, so it gets to be very, very quickly, very complicated for it to do these experiments, except unless you pick these, really these signposts, these guideposts, these, these simple molecules that we're concentrating on, where there's, it's almost impossible to refute the detection because they're so simple that you can definitely calculate this frequency. Well, it's a tough problem. Yeah. It, it, well, it's a tough problem, but for, like, the molecule that I am the most confident about is in interstellar space that's large, can be, is HC9N. It's, again, it's a, it's a relative, this HC13N, but it's just one hydrogen, nine carbons, and one nitrogen. And in one minute with the GBT, the Green Bank Telescope, you can make an irrefutable observation, certainly in 10 minutes, because you'll see exactly what you expect to see as far as bright tones in these certain frequencies and effectively nothing else. So, you know, in the, the simple, you can write down the, the equation and calculate to, you know, to 10 decimal, well, actually not even, it's, we actually have to calculate these frequencies to at least uh, 12 decimal places in order to, to have the sufficient accuracy. And we can do that, and we see them exactly where they're supposed to be. So there's no question about this. And that is, this HC9N is bigger than glycine and, and a quarter of the known amino acids. So that kind of chemistry is happening, and we just, it's a guide to the fact that if we look harder, we will see those other chemicals. Um, the, the thing that actually with the GBT, we. We, have to, we are going beyond the very most basic steps. We, 
We now know these molecules are here, but the next question you ask yourself is, how did they get here? And it turns out when you go to more complicated molecules, they do carbon chains, they do have what's called an isomer, which is the same chemical formula, but arranged in different ways. And if you can observe, and that's one of these things that Mike Hollis, who was this one of the most productive users of the GBT, he's from Goddard Space Flight Center, has found, you, you see the amount of those different, the same chemical combination, but different in different arrangements, then you can start to say, I, you can start to understand how those molecules form. And in fact, some isomers, which is this, um, have lower energy, so that we would think in random chemical processes they would be more abundant than higher energy ones. But in fact, his observations show that even the rarer, what you would expect to be rarer is more common. So that, that what that indicates is the complexity of the chemistry going on. And it shows, it shows probably that it's not completely random chemistry, but there are certain chemical pathways. That it's not just a you know, big ball of gas, molecules colliding. And these bigger molecules are built out of littler molecules, but not just atoms. Like you get a small chain of carbon and nitrogen and hydrogen, and they'll collide with another small chain. And you'll get certain combinations because of they're already the molecules are already built, and you'll get these bigger molecules. Well, Glenn, good luck to you. Um, is your experiment still going, or have you had all your 100 hours? Have you? Used we still have. Uh, well, we still have uh, five more scheduled dates of, of ob observations, of potential observations. So we'll be working on this um, and really finishing up this summer and, and putting our results. Presenting, I'm gonna, we're hoping to present our results at a conference in Prague, Czechoslovakia at the end of the summer, so we have to work hard and get everything uh, clean. All of the data reduction is 100 hours of observation results in like 500 hours of actual work. Because right. there's a lot of details that have to be checked and double checked. And uh, we That's have- a lot of data to analyze. Yeah, a lot of data to analyze. And, and to be confident about your results, you have to make certain kinds of, you can't just look at the data, you have to look at one set of data, compare it to another set of data. And so we're gonna do that and make those presentations at the International Astronomical Union meeting in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Well, that's cool. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Glenn Langston from the Observatory in Green Bank. We appreciate you taking some time. Thank you, Sue Ann. I enjoyed talking to you and our listeners on Allegheny Mountain Radio Astronomy. All right. Folks, that about wraps it up for Mountain Radio Astronomy for this month. So I'll see you or talk to you again in August.